Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, right before I came on air, me and my guest were talking about summer. And I have to tell you, people, you know, I moved back from L.A. two years ago. Grew up back east. This is my second summer here. And it was, except for the weather, it was a great summer. You know, I went to the shore. I went to Baltimore with Joanne. I saw a few baseball games. I saw a few concerts. And just this Saturday, we went to see uh, Jason Aldean, because I'm very, very good friends with his drummer, Rich Redmond, who actually said he hung out with my guest today at NAM a few years ago. And my guest is, is an amazing drummer. He's was with Savoy Brown. He's with Foghat, and he's still with Foghat. And he's just I was a brand new band called Earl and the Agitators. And my guest is Roger Earl. How you doing, Roger? Steve, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, <clears throat> I'm uh, dripping wet because uh, I live I live in a house by the on Long Island, and uh, we're going on the road on Wednesday. And I'm bringing my own drums because we're doing a four day run, and we're uh, we've got a Sprinter van and a truck and stuff. So I want to use my own drum. So I have to pack them all up. Uh, you know, Rockstar's life is not that easy. I know. <laughs> I got I to gotta ask you something, I, though. I, I, let me ask you I this. I can set my own drums up. I know what to do. We've well, been playing them long enough, but I got to ask you, before we talk about your drumming, before you talk, I heard you're a very avid fisherman. How did you get into that? Uh, actually, um, probably ever since I was a kid, um, I think I got my first fishing rod when I was about six. I would save up, you know, money I got for my birthdays and Christmas and stuff like that. I grew up in southwest London in Hounslow, and, uh, and I was just talking about it the other day, funnily enough, because we were sort of writing, um, a book on Foghat and me and, uh, you know, everything that's gone on. And I remember the time when I was walking down to the local post office with my father uh, because uh, I was going to draw the money out to buy myself my first fishing rod. Prior to that, it was a bamboo uh, pole with some cotton on it and a bent pin. <laughs> and so ever since I was six years old, my father was... Uh, he would fish any chance he got, uh, which wasn't a lot because he used to work seven days a week. But um, yeah, I fished. There, I fished, therefore I am. Now, is that one of the reasons why you bought a houseboat? Is because you love fishing? <laughs> no, actually, the houseboat is, was um, it was rented back in 1975. Uh, Craig McGregor, Craig McGregor, our uh, She's 74, I think he joined us, 74. And he lived there. And then Linda, my wife, uh, became our uh, office manager. And then she bought the house a few years ago. And uh, I married well, what can I say? (laughs) 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 I I used to to live about... um, three quarters of a mile across the bay uh, opposite where uh, we live now. So, um, yeah, I live on a houseboat. I can actually fish out off the deck uh, uh, high tide and uh, there's a bunch of bluefish uh, popping around out there. Uh, Steve, I- I've got to go. I'm going fishing. What's that? Just kidding. <laughs> I know. It's, you can fish and talk to me at the same time. You can you can catch some bluefish and we can talk about how to cook them. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, 
fish pie. I, I kind of like grilling them. I also, I smoke them and make a, a smoked bluefish dip, which uh, everybody seems to like. And also, it's, 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 you know, you, it's bluefish dip that will like, keep in the fridge for well over a week and no problem. So it's a way of, uh, you know, preserving them. Also, smoking fish, uh, they'll stay fresher longer. So, no, but, you... Uh, when you were yeah, I haven't been fishing much this year. I've been out like half a dozen times with a couple of the younger grandchildren. I caught a few sharks, a couple of small striped bass, but that was about it. Now, you said you started fishing when you were six. When did you start playing the drums? I think was it you were 13? Was that? Am I about right? Yeah, that's, that's close. Um, I, uh, I, I, I said that I, I used to work after school. I used to work... Uh, Saturday mornings in a bakery, get up at like 4 a.m. And uh, during the week, I used to work three days after school selling uh, letter heading or something. And, you know, my parents weren't rich, but uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were good parents. I never went hungry. Um, but, you know, you had to earn your own money. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, I said to my dad when I was 12, I said, Dad, I want to get a motorbike. And he said, um, I'm not going to help you with that, son. He, even though he had a bike when he was like a teenager, I wasn't allowed to have one, I guess, especially when you're living in London. Um, and I said, well, I want to get a drum kit. And he said, okay, son. He said, look, uh, I know a drummer who, who, who does, uh, who's a drum teacher. He said, why don't we uh, get in touch with him? So I started taking drum lessons um Saturday afternoons, I think I did it, and uh, I did that for about two years, saved up my money, and uh, when I was 15, I got my first drum kit, which was uh, a black uh, Marine Pearl Premier kit, and a couple of Zildjian cymbals. And then that was it, then I brought it home, we lived in a semi-detached house on an estate, and it it wasn't very big, but it was... uh, I set it up in the what was then the dining area, and I started playing. And my mother, my mum and dad came from the East End of London, from Forest Gate and West Ham. And uh, my mum said, "Oh, this will never do." If we do, we had neighbours either side of us, so uh, that that stopped. And uh, my father let me have his woodworking shed, and we soundproofed that. And then I started. I joined my first band when I was 15. Now, I did a whole bunch of auditions within, like, six months of getting my drum kit. So I don't think I was all that good then, but I was very keen. So you start you start in a band very quickly after you started playing. When did you start feeling you were getting into the groove and getting better as a drummer? Well, uh, what, what I did was uh, we had a... We had a Grundig uh, tape recorder and uh, and a record player, and my older brother would like tape uh, songs and put them on the tape player, and then I would have a couple of speakers in my uh, six foot by six foot woodshed that was now soundproofed. And um, after school, I would come home and uh, practice. I would practice to uh, let's see um, Chuck Berry. It was sort of fairly straightforward, like drumming on Chuck's stuff. But all his stuff always had like a swing to it. There was always like a bop 
two uh, Chucks playing um, at Drummond, let's see, what was his name? Freddie Bilo, I think, played on most of uh, Chuck Berry stuff and was, in fact, uh, you know, a good jazz drummer. Uh, in fact, I met Freddie in um, about 1976, 77, somewhere around there. Uh, we had a day off in Chicago, and uh, Lance and Dave and I would often go out to the blues clubs and either jam or just, just hang out and see what was going on. And we go to this place called um, Mother Blues, that was it. I don't know if it's still there. And uh, we walk in the door, we pay our five bucks or whatever it was. I think it was only three back then. <clears throat> I go to the bar like I often did, you know, to get us a couple of drinks. I got a, a cognac and got Dave a white wine. And, and I come back, Dave's still standing in the doorway staring at the stage. And I, and I go, it's your drink, Dave. I said, what's up? He said, he said to me, he said, uh, you know that he's playing drums, Roger? I look up, I said, no, who is it, Dave? And he said, that's Freddie Bilo. I, well, I knew who he was. And then Dave uh, listed um, numerous records that Freddie had played on. So they were t- the band took a break. And Dave and I went up there and introduced ourselves to him and shook hands with him. It was, you know, it's really cool, like, meeting, meeting your musical heroes. And uh, he looked at us and he said, uh, you guys want to get up and play? Uh, you know, Dave and I looked at each other, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So he went off to the bar and uh, Dave and I took over for the next hour or so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the drummers I learned to play from. Also... Um, Francis Clay, who uh, played with Muddy Waters' band, in fact, live at Newport, uh, 1960, I believe, 61. That was a fantastic record. It's one of the best live records I've ever heard. And, you know, and I listened to uh, uh, Little Richard's band. What a fantastic band he had. I mean, one of the most incredible drummers. Um, you know, Jerry D. Lewis, I was a big Jerry D. Lewis fan. And uh, it was, you know, all that sort of early rock and roll. Blues and jazz. I didn't really get into blues until I was about 16. I started going up to London and looking to listen to the clubs. I joined a, a record club in Chicago and uh, they sent me a, a list of all the records they had. I think that's when I bought my first uh, Alan Wolf record. I figured, name like that, it's got to be great, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which it was. <laughs> So, so you're playing, you're learning the music now. Now, how do you end up in Savoy Brown? Because that was the first band you started recording albums with, right? Yeah. Um, I was, I, when I, the first band I joined was when I was 17, a band called The Tramps. Um, uh, they, they were, we were all friends at high school. I was best friends with the, the bass player, Dave Hutchins. Ray Dorsett was the lead singer who went on to form Mungo Jerry with my older brother. And... Uh, we were playing since I was 17, and then around when I was about 20, everything sort of kind of slowed down. We were just a three-piece by that time, and we were struggling to get work. And um, we were being booked by the same agency as uh, Savoy Brown. And so Dave and I, who uh, was the bass player, we went along, and they were looking for a bass player and a drummer. Uh, we didn't get the first audition, but uh, about two or three weeks later, I got a phone call from, uh, I think it was Harry Simmons, the uh, the manager of uh, Savoy Brown, and asked if I'd like to come back again because apparently the drummer they got didn't work out. He uh, couldn't play a shuffle. 
called Flash Shuffle. What's he doing in the blues band? Right. Uh, so I get my second shot at uh, a place called the Nags Head in uh, Southwest London, Battersea, I think, somewhere around there. I want to, uh, what, yeah, Battersea, somewhere around there. Anyway, uh, I borrowed my dad's car, and uh, I'm a, my day job was I was a commercial artist. And uh, so we'd, I, dragged, I borrowed dad's car and, and took all my drums upstairs and uh, set them up. And we played uh, probably for, I don't know, two and a half, three hours. Um, and I think it was all right. I struggled with one song, but eventually got it. Uh, so then I started packing up the drums and started going downstairs. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm uh, going back to work, you know, I mean, <laughs> to keep your day job. And they said, we've got a gig in Birmingham tonight. And I went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was when I joined Savoy Brown. And I held on to that job, I think, for, uh, that was what, late 88, something like that. 88, 89, 70, and I left, I left uh, the boy Brown um, beginning of 71. In fact, we just played with him the, uh, the other day at the uh, London Blues Fest in Ontario. Um, I got up and jammed with Kim, and uh, Kim's now with our, our agency, Paradise Artists, so uh, we're doing a number of dates together with uh, Kim Simmons and, uh, and Foghat, and sometimes the other band, that I play in Earl and the Agitators opens up for them. So I get to play in all three bands. See, that's awesome. I don't know where <laughs> I get the energy from, but I, I have to find it somehow. Actually, it's, uh, it's a guess. Kim is uh, probably playing better than he ever has. He was always a great guitar player. And he's got a really, uh, really good uh, rhythm section bass player and a drummer that supports him. And... Uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's really cool hanging out together, and uh, we get on. Kim and I always got on real well. There was never any aggro between us. Now, now, how did you you formed Foghat? Why did you decide to go out on your own? What was the reason? Just because you guys felt like growing out more, or you left Savoy Brown, who seems like they're doing good, but then you formed Foghat. How did you come to the conclusion? Um. Brown, uh, we, we were just sort of like hired guns at the time, and Savoy um, uh, Brown got a new record deal uh, with London Records or somebody, and um, we were getting, uh, we were being paid a hundred bucks a week, which you know, which was okay, but the band at the time was getting between uh, ten and twelve, fifteen thousand dollars a night. Well, back in back in seventy. 1970, that was a lot of money. And Dave and I didn't really think we were getting um, our fair shake. But I think more than that, it was just time for a change. Um, Kim and I, like I said, and, and Dave were always cool together. Kim was sort of wanted to go in a slightly different direction, I think. And Dave and I were always had this, uh, how can I put it, a little bit more rock and roll in ourselves. Um, and uh, so we left um, but the manager Harry Simmons was a real shit uh, he uh, when we went down and had breakfast the next day and we told him 
um, we were going to leave, but we'd, we'd stay until, you know, Kim got another band and whatever he wanted to do. And Harry Simmons said, you'll never work again in, in England and all the States. And it was like, it was pretty weird, as opposed to saying, well, good luck, lad, and uh, maybe I could be your manager. You know, that's what I would have said. But he was a bit of a scumbag anyway. Uh, so that was that. And uh, I, I, I stayed uh, in touch with Kim over the years. Um, whenever he played um, out on Long Island in, in the 70s, um, I would go and see him and say hello. Uh, but it was time for a change. Um, we struggled for the first a couple of years um, we did some uh, actually the first time we actually got paid any money after that tour because they were earning so much money they had to get rid of some of it so we had a couple of thousand dollars a piece at the end of that tour and uh, we started writing and recording um, and then a, a good friend of mine Tony Otida was, uh, was friends with Albert Grossman managed uh, Bob Dylan and uh, the band and a whole bunch of uh, luminaries and uh, he was looking for an English rock and roll band on his new label Bearsville Records so um, Tony Otina called me up in England and said look you know Albert's looking for uh, a band anyway we'd already been doing some uh, demos anyway Tony Otina came over and he shot the demos that we had, and basically, um, I don't think they were that bad, but we couldn't get arrested. He played it to all the major companies, all the major record labels, and all the smaller ones, everybody. And they didn't want to know. Um, Albert Grossman came over sometime late 71, uh, well, around 71 anyway, um, he was uh, touring with the band and he brought Todd Rundgren over with him. And uh, we did a couple of demos. Actually, what we did was we rented uh, a small club, sort of bar room in uh, North London in, near Islington where my favourite uh, football team actually plays, used to play anyway. And um, we sat there, we sat in this club, it was like about two or three in the afternoon and we played about six or seven songs and uh, excuse me a moment and then uh, Albert was sort of taken aback but, and, and, he, and he came over to me and he said uh, well uh, is there somewhere we can go and get some cheer biscuits which I thought was like a good start anyway <laughs> <laughs> we went across the road there was a, a little hotel over there we ordered tea and biscuits and, I, and I'm sitting there on pins and needles, as is the rest of the band. And uh, and he's looking around. He says, "I always get chills when I when I say this." He says, "This is exactly what he said." He said, "Well, hey, let's do it." <laughs> now, I mean, I knew Albert Grossman was, uh, you know, I mean, it managed Bob Dylan, the band, Peter Paul and Mary, Janis Joplin, to name but a few. So this man's saying, let's do it. We're on our way. So a couple of months later, I think he sent me a check for $10,000. And with that, we started recording uh, at Rockfield in Wales. And we were doing okay, but 
there was something missing and um, we had the day shift and Dave Edmonds had the night shift. It was just one studio there at the time. And we'd listen to some of Dave's stuff, Dave Edmonds stuff, and Dave would listen to some of ours. And I believe it was our manager, Tony Otida. We were discussing, well, maybe we can get Dave Edmonds to produce it because, you know, we we weren't really producers. In fact, we weren't. You know, we right. could play and we could record and uh, the engineers were decent, but needed, we needed a helping hand. And Dave said, well, uh, Dave Edmonds said, well, Oh, yeah, when I finish my record, I'll give you lads a hand. So uh, he started working on it and sprinkled some of his um, fairy dust. And I, I, in fact, I, I know without um, Dave Edmonds' input, it would have been nowhere near as good, nowhere near as successful as it was. So uh, thank you, Dave Edmonds. Yeah, Dave was really cool. He was, he was a guest to work with, actually. Now, how did you come up with the name Foghat? Oh, you must have read that story. I never read that story. I, I, I do all my research. Yeah. I saw nothing about Foghat. you got to tell me. All right. I'll, I'll tell you the story. Uh, Dave Peverick came up with it when he was um, what, what, 13 years old. Uh, he was playing a, like a, a word game, like a Scrabble game with his brother, John. And Dave made up the word, and uh, sibling rival would have its way. Dave eventually was right. Uh, Dave made it up. We had a bunch of other sort of names, but none of them like really fit. And actually, it wasn't until we finished the record, and we were going up to see the artwork up in London. There was myself, Dave, and Rob Price were in my car, and we were going up the stairs, and it was like. Well, what do we call ourselves? <laughs> and that was it. Um, doesn't really mean anything particular. Uh, there is another story with Foghat, uh, but how much time you got? I got as much time as you want, Roger, because we got we, we, I want to hear okay. this stuff. All right. Well, when when we were in Savoy Brown, um, Dave, as uh, Dave gave everybody uh, pseudonyms for want for a better word. Uh, and uh, what was I? My name was Skins Willie. Uh, I think Keith, Tim Simmons was the incredible gnome. Lonesome Dave was also known as Jack's Man, because his middle name was Jack and his dad's name was Jack. And Dave thought it would be a good idea if um, our lead singer at the time, Chris Jordan, would be called Luther Foghat. Um, Chris Jordan couldn't quite see that, so that was the first time Luther Foghat actually came up. Now, now you're in Foghat, and you start. When, yeah. did, when do you start taking off? I know you come to the U.S. because you know you guys have been playing around, and you said with Savoy Brown, you weren't you were getting screwed. I mean, we, I mean, in all honesty, we weren't paying you right. And Foghat starts to take off. What was the ride like when you started? When you just start, people just started listening to you. I mean, what was like the, what was, you knew that you guys were going in the right direction. Was there a certain show or what did you know? Well, when we first started, we, we still had to deal with um, our ex-manager, Harry Simmons. Um, they were, uh, Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack were bands that he managed and they were both with uh, uh, the agency at the time with uh, Chrysalis. 
and I went to speak with Derek and Terry and Terry Wright and said, look, you know, do you think you could help us out? And they said, well, Harry's told us if we talk, if we even talk to you, uh, he's going to take uh, Chicken Shack and Savoy Ground away, so we can't help you. So we were kind of screwed at the time. Um, Derek Taylor, who was working for Warner Brothers, was, uh, Virgil Records was a subsidiary of that. Uh, he, he was the Beatles publicist. Really cool guy, lovely guy. And he really liked the band. He really liked the, the stuff we were doing on the record. And um, he got us a two or three week tour supporting Captain Beefheart, because I think he was one of, on one of uh, Warner Brothers labels. So that was the first few dates we did in England. Did a couple of other clubs, but that was it. Um, so we're sort of the records released in the States. And uh, I just want to make love to you. We're starting to make noise on the radio. Our manager calls us up and tells us it's making noise. We apply for visas to come to the States, start rehearsing vigorously. Uh, we, had, we had a band house out in, uh, in Berkshire. And uh, that's, that's where it started. Our first date was in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We played a, a city festival in a park there. And um, our, our H-1 visas hadn't come through, so we couldn't get paid. We, you know, they had a check for us, and we said, well, we can't take that. You don't, you don't want to screw with Uncle Sam, let me assure you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, we played for free in the park, and our visas came through about, uh, about seven or eight days later. And then we started, oh, and by the way, uh, the people in Oshkosh, they say that the people in the Midwest are the very best. They sent the check through. It was um, $1,350, I think. Yeah, a lot of money back then. Um, <laughs> and that was it. Uh, I think our first tour lasted about 12 months. Um, my, I got home back to England. My daughter was walking and looked at me and said, Who's that, Mummy? Doesn't look like Uncle Jimmy. <laughs> no, no. I'm, be, I'm, be, I'm being cruel now. But the truth. <laughs> now, now, why do you think America took to you so quick? Because you know all those songs. You know, when, when I was younger, you know, we, we, everyone just knew them, and it was cool. Do you, th do you think you had a different sound than what was coming out of the American bands? I think, like I said earlier, um, Dave Edmonds was. I mean, his production, I thought, was absolutely fantastic on edit. It was like, you know, totally unique sort of feel. You know, we were just basically a rock and roll band. Uh, you know, uh, let's see. Oh, my older brother said to me once, uh, you know, Rog, anything other than three calls in a song has to be viewed with a certain amount of suspicion. <laughs> Occasionally we'd have you know, more than three chords, but Dave explained to me one time that they're passing chords, you don't worry about that, Roger. Well, your songs, they're just, they're, they're catchy, too, you remember them. I mean, everybody remembers Slow Ride. I mean, it's just that beginning, everyone just remembers that, and that must be great as being in a, in a band that you can look back years, you know, that was years later, I look forward years later, and people still people still love slow ride. You say slow ride, everyone goes freaking crazy. Yeah, uh, well, you, you you must understand, uh, Steve. That I wrote that. 
the beginning. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that was my attempt at humor, drum humor. Yeah. Actually, it was um, our, our, our producer at the time, and also just joined the band on bass in 1974, I think it was, Nick Jameson, who'd also uh, produced a couple of other albums for us. We, uh, we were rehearsing at a, Rob Price and I owned a house out on Long Island, and I was living upstate in uh, Woodstock and Bearsville. And uh, Tony Stevens had uh, just left the band, and uh, I asked Nick Jameson if he wanted to join, and Nick said, yeah. Um, and we drove down, he, he lived up in Woodstock too, and uh, it, it actually came from a jam in, in the basement. Um, it started off like with a like kind of a John Lee Hooker riff, but it's played like a 4-4, it's like a shuffle time. And uh, we just jammed, and Nick Jameson wrote all the middle parts, you know, the bass stuff and the, uh, the bass picking and there were a number of chords and some of the lyrics. And uh, that was it. Um, in fact, he edited it upstairs in the kitchen. I remember if we had it on a cassette, and he would cut the cassette tape up a little bit and join it back together again. And uh, he was very clever. Nick Jameson, he was um, absolutely special. In fact, it, it was probably one person, one singular person that I've learned more from about recording and playing and music in general. I would say it'd be Nick Jameson. I consider the man a genius and because I'd known him for so long and worked with him so many times, um, I've always learned something new or another way to look at stuff or play stuff. Uh, yeah, good man. Now your where album, were we? Well, I want to talk about you know we were talking about how big that song was when your album started gold, started going gold. Who tells you that? And then what do you what would you do with those albums? Because that's quite an accomplishment. Um, somebody stole them. No. Yeah, I had I have. I had two that my mother kept. Um, to be honest with you, I wasn't really all that uh, interested in collecting stuff. In fact, I didn't even get a house until uh, just before we did the uh, Night Shift album. I was living in hotels or a friend's place. It was like um, it was kind of like a I don't know, road warrior bum kind of thing. We were working all the time. I didn't really have any time. London, London Dave was, uh, you know, married and he had a house. Uh, Rod and I shared a house uh, for a while out in Long Island, but then Rod sort of just lived there. It was, um, it was interesting, very interesting. What was it like being a rock star at that time? I mean, it was it was the seventies. That was like that's like one of the coolest times. I went to college in the eighties, and I thought that was great. But the seventies were were a much cooler time if you're a rocker. What was it like being a rock star? That was fucking great. What are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was. um, No, I I had a great time. Um, I embraced all aspects of it. the band was playing great, especially once Nick Jameson uh, joined the band and after the Fall for the City album. Actually, the Energized album was the, the, the first album that really broke the band when we started playing really big arenas and uh, people wanted us on as a support act, as it were. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Um, I, I always loved playing. Um, 
I had no problem touring. Uh, I would sleep whenever I got a chance, and the rest of the time we'd be doing stuff. So Dave and I used to go out and jam quite a bit. Um, you know, jam at local clubs if we had a day off or something. Uh, also, Craig McGregor, when he joined about a year later, Craig and I got real tight and would often go out and jam in clubs and bars and stuff. It, you know, music. I'm one of those fortunate few in this world who uh, get to earn a decent living, you know, playing music. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> I know. I mean, well, you know, what's funny is I saw, I saw you in Philadelphia in 1981, it was September, I looked up the exact date, and you and Bloyster Colt were on tour together, and you played the, uh-huh. the Spectrum, and it was just me and my buddy, my buddy was a huge Bloyster Colt fan, I was a huge Foghat fan, and we went, and it was just such a great night of music. Did you like playing, do you remember playing Philly a lot? Did you like playing Philadelphia? Because our music fans were Yeah, yeah, um, yeah there, was a, there was a couple of places we used to play earlier on as well, but Factory, is that right? Yeah, you like the factory, yeah. Is that, all right, yeah. Um, that, was that Larry Maggot was the promoter? I think so, and then there was also uh, the uh, tower. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, it's written down somewhere. Well, actually, we're actually, um, we're in the process of like uh, starting a book. I'm going to spend some time with a writer next week. He's coming on the road with us, so we'll uh, try to remember everything. Um, it's not, it'll, you know, it'll be like Foghat uh, stories, what it was like sort of growing up in London, you know, the Savoy Brown era and everything about Foghat and, uh, and everybody that I can find, uh, I've asked them sort of like if they'd like to be involved in it and like, you know, write their version of it. I've also told them explicitly to be very candid, don't hold anything back. And you won't get fired where they're not employed. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. We don't have anybody to edit it, which is one of the big things when you start writing a book. You need somebody who's uh, you know, got their head on their shoulders with editing. But you have to start somewhere. Well, um, now, you're going to write that. Now, you are the only member of Foghat who's been in all the incarnations and there was you had one breakup right and then you started up two years later is that what happened and then you've been with him the whole time uh, yeah well, no not in 1984 um Dave moved back to England as Dave moved back to England and uh it, oddly, oddly enough he didn't he didn't actually tell me he was leaving we came off tour and my wife at the time said you know Dave's moving to England like wife, Linda, has been sending all the furniture back there, and I said, no, he didn't say anything. So, uh, Dave moved back to England, and uh, I sort of hung around the house, mowed the lawn, fixed the cars for a couple of months. Um, then I put a band together called the Knee Tremblers, which was myself, uh, Craig McGregor, um, Eric Cartwright, and we had a we had a keyboard player called Jim Roberge to start off with, which was like three quarters of Foghat. And then uh, a little while later, we got another guitar player, Jim, left the band uh, with uh, DJ Bergeson. And then I joined a band called the New England Jam Band, with a whole bunch of luminaries. You just have to be famous one, so apparently I qualified for that. Um, John Bushy was one of the guitar players, absolutely fantastic. Charlie Farron was one of the singers and guitar players. Um, 
friend Sheehan from Boston, the bass player. Fran Sheehan and I have been good friends since uh, early days of Boston. So uh, and that was a lot of fun, actually. I played in them for like two or three years. And then I put the knee tremblers back together again. And um, it's not uh, advertising as this podcast. And as it was three quarters of podcast, uh, Dave wasn't around. So I started going out again. And then Dave came back in... 90, 1990, something like that. And I was going through a divorce, and I talked to Dave, and uh, I went, he went to see him. And uh, he uh, he didn't want to put the original band back together, so I had to come off the road to deal with my divorce, and um, we got back together eventually. Um, it was really quite interesting. It was, uh, like I said, Dave and I always got on well anyway, but it's, They've never really, never really talked that much. Uh, and when we did get back together, um, <laughs> we were sitting down talking. I said, look, Dave, it's going to be great. You know, we always played well together and it was always fun. He said, yeah, he said, and if it doesn't work out, we can always arm wrestle around America again. And I said, oh, Dave, it's going to work out. And it did. In fact, Dave and I became probably tighter after that than uh, we'd ever been. And now, you, you at one point, Rick Rubin wanted to get that because Rick Rubin was always like into different things, rap and then run DMC with Aerosmith, stuff like that. What happened with Rick Rubin? Why didn't that uh, that take off? Um, I wasn't around for that. That was part of the catalyst that helped put uh, the original band back together. Um, Dave may have been involved with it. I think it was something to do with our manager then. And uh, what happened was Rick Rubin, I think, was busy with a couple of other bands and um, our manager in his infinite wisdom at the time decided that we wouldn't use Rick Rubin. I was looking forward to it. I thought, you know, because I knew, I knew who he was and what he could do. And uh, it would have been, uh, he wanted to do it with the original band. So we put the original band back together. And uh, we, were, we went out on the road for like about two months and then that stopped for various reasons. Don't need to go into that now. Um, I took a break. I went back to England for a little while. My father was ill, um, had Alzheimer's. And I went back to help out my mum. And then uh, they sent me a cassette of a bunch of songs that he'd written whilst I was over there. And we started working on it. And then... I, I flew back and forth for uh, a little while between England and the States, you know, to work on the new stuff. And we did the return of the Boogeyman album, which I was particularly uh, pleased with. Uh, Nick Jameson produced most of that. He did, in fact, produce all of it, but there were some other issues as well. It wasn't his fault. Um, and... Uh, Rob Price was in the band, but he was struggling. He didn't. He wasn't enjoying being on the road because Rod originally left in 1980 because he had some, uh, I guess you could say, with alcohol issues. He just had issues, and, and he wasn't happy being on the road. Whereas Dave and I, um, uh, you know, in our lifeblood, it was something I think we both enjoyed. I mean, Dave, even when he was sick, he was. Uh, he gave it 110%. That was one of the beauties of uh, Dave. You know, he'd get on stage and 
that was it. He would uh, give it everything he had. Uh, I loved him for that. You know, when you get on stage with a band, you have to work together. It's not about... Prokhat was never like about individuals. It was always a band. Uh, we played as a band. We acted as a band. Um, it, was, it, was, yeah, it, it was good for a few years. And, um, then uh, they got ill. Um, Rob Price, well, Rob Price left. Uh, and then we did one more tour when he, uh, he thought he was cured, but apparently not. Had uh, kidney cancer. And uh, that was it. So you, you play with these guys for a long time. You're in a band now, besides Fog, you're still playing with Fog, but you're in a band, Earl and the Agitators. What was that like putting that band yeah. together? Because you've 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 played with some guys for so long. How did you form this band? And I know you guys are you've done some concerts. I believe my friend Elliot Magoo uh, booked you guys. How did you form Earl and Agitators? And why is everybody named Earl? I know your name, of course, is Earl, but everyone else's name isn't Earl. But I know your name is Earl. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, let Scott Holt about. Uh, six or seven years ago, he used to he used to play guitar with Buddy Guy, and I met him uh, through a, a, a mutual friend, uh, a riser and photographer. And uh, he came down to the studio down to Florida. We have a studio in Deland, Florida, where we do all our recording now and rehearsals. And uh, we just got, we got on great. We started writing and playing right away. Uh, Brian came over. Me, Brian, and Scott. Uh, then we started playing, uh, and then Craig came down and hung out for a while. And uh, in fact, Craig is playing on most of the. Uh, I say most. No, I'm about a good half of the agitated uh, studio uh, songs. And of course, Craig passed away. February. He'd been ill for about three years, and uh, Rodney O'Quinn joined us. He's an agitator now. The name Agitator, uh, Earl and the Agitators, came from, well, you know, well, you know, a beverage of choice is, is wine. So, uh, we, you know, we've been sort of rehearsing, we're not rehearsing, like playing, you know, like all day. So, everybody's really sort of tired. So, we're drinking some wine, me, Scott, and uh, Brian Bassett, our lead and slide player. We're sitting around the table down in Florida having a few libations and Brian came up with a name. He said, let's call it Earl and the Agitators. Now, to this point, I didn't think we were going to put a band together. We were just you know, having fun making music. And then Scott Holt is an absolute blast to play with. One of the best people I, I know. An incredible guitar player and a great singer. A great songwriter. Um, we just hit it off. We, we wrote maybe a dozen songs in like in like a, a two week period. I mean, every day we would start something. Uh, like Brian would come up with a riff. Uh, I came up with like maybe a title and a couple of lines, and it was uh, it was just fun. Everything clicked. Um, the track it's taken so long to actually sort of get this done because. Foghat also uh, has been really busy. Last year was probably uh, the uh, most successful year we've had in about you know, 30 years. Uh, um, 
you know, we're actually turning down work. Um, that's never heard of from a band. Right. Uh, yeah. But that, that's why the agitators took so long. We've done a few dates. Um, we played uh, a good friend's club in Chicago called the Arcade Theater. We played in the club there, and uh, we recorded it, and it turned out absolutely brilliantly. And Brian, Brian uh, Bassett mixed it, and so instead of it just being a studio album, we've got um, uh, six or seven live tracks that we're going to put on there, so it'll be a double CD when it comes out. The artwork's done, or the front is, uh, our poor manager is like under the hammer to finish everything. I think it's going to come out sometime towards the end of this year. Now, will you tour with that when it comes out again? And when it comes out, will you, will you yeah, go on tour? Yeah, we've already done enough for a day to I guess. We just played um, the London Blues Fest in uh, London, Ontario. Um, we've, we've done a few dates. Uh, the only issue was is that Fog had so busy, um, we don't really get a chance to play. But um, we're in touch with each other. And basically, you know, three quarters of a Fog hat in there anyway. We have a few other musicians that uh, we play. My drum tech, uh, Mark Petricelli, uh, plays uh, percussion with the band. Um, we have another guitar player who comes and joins us from time to time, uh, Tony Bullard. He's been in a band called The Blue Lords. Really super nice guy. And uh, it also gives um, Rodney O'Quinn, our bass player, who was with Pat Travers for, I think, about 10 years or something, um, a chance to actually stretch out and sing. Uh, got a great voice, which I didn't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. We have a really good time. Um, the people seem to love it every time we play somewhere. Um, and of course, in fact, we played it when we played in London this weekend, Ontario. We got together and we're sitting down talking about some songs that we have ideas for. It's like never ending with this rock. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it's a fun. It's a fun project. That's what it's supposed to be about. It, it, is. it is. It is. It is. It's a lot of fun making the music, and uh, like I said, Scott is an incredible. Uh, now you said star player and singer. You, you said Foghead has been really busy last year. Busy. Who is in your new lineup, and how did you put the, this lineup together? Uh, well, Charlie Hume joined us um, about six months after Lonesome Dave died. And on vocals and lead guitar. Brian Bassett um, had already been playing in Foghat uh, when uh, Rob Price left. Um, so Brian's actually been in the band for like 24, 25 years. Uh, he plays slide, lead guitar, uh, he engineers all our records, he produces all our records. Uh, he's the resident genius. And he's just one beautiful man. Uh, I love him like a brother. Um, he's absolutely incredible. And uh, he's the one who actually sort of helps hold that together. Actually, the truth is our manager is the one who holds it together. <laughs> uh, and Rodney O'Quinn uh, was actually hand-picked by Clayton McGregor. Clayton McGregor stopped playing with the band about three years ago. His last show we did in... Uh, San Diego we were playing with uh, Deep Purple and he, he called me up and he said I really want to play that show Rog and uh, then after that I had about three or four different bass players playing in the band because 
Um, as far as I was concerned, Craig McGregor was our bass player until he told me he couldn't do it anymore. Um, it was, we would just have standings. Um, Craig lived out in Pennsylvania and he went to see Pat Trapper's band and Rodney was the bass player with Pat's band. And he was really impressed with the way Rodney played. And, uh, and, he, and he met Rodney after the show and Rodney sort of told him he was a big fan of Foghat and, and Craig's bass playing. So Craig invited him over to his house and breakfast the next morning. In fact, Craig went and picked him up. And I think Craig just wanted to see what he had under his fingernails. And obviously impressed him. And uh, later on that day, Craig called me and he said, I've found a bass player for you, Rog. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, Rodney O'Quinn became our bass player because Craig McGregor said so. And I figured that was when Craig decided he wasn't going to come out and play anymore, so, uh, yeah, it was rough. Craig was my brother. So, you, you guys, you're back, you know, you're, 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 you said you're pop, more popular than ever. How does the crowd react to your, they must love your songs because they know them. I mean, you must see different generations upon generations in your audience. You must see parents and their kids and their kids. I mean, that must be, as, as, as a musician, that must be a great feeling that you're, your music has transcended generations. Yeah, and also, you know, we've lost, you know, we've lost our original singer, we lost our original guitar player. Rod left in, in like, 1980, but, you know, it, it's, uh, I think, I think what it is is because the music itself is, is you know, like, just the test of time. Um, you know, it's rock and roll music. Uh, the band was always good. We could always play. I mean, whatever incarnation of this band, uh, that we always had great musicians in the band. And um, and also, uh, we've been making records uh, continuously. Not once a year like it used to be, but like every two or three years, we put a studio out, a studio album out, or uh, we'll do um, we'll put a live uh, CD if we've got a decent recording. Um, we've got three or four uh, DVDs out. So it's not like, you know, we just sat back on our laurels. Um, I mean, this band can play. And it's, it's always been a people's band anyway. Yeah, our fans have been fantastic. And I think because, you know, there was a whole bunch of, like, movies that we've had soundtracks on, and uh, Guitar Hero, uh, car adverts, and all these kids sort of hear slow ride or I just want to make love to you or fall for the city. And yeah, it is. You know, you get a bunch of kids, you know, either teenagers or young 20s coming to see you and they'd say their older siblings turned them on or, or their mum and dad played Foghat con continuously in their house. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'd say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Said, no, no, it was great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I'm very fortunate. We're, we're playing to like, uh, you know, huge audiences, uh, festivals, not festivals, fairs, uh, theatres. Um, you know what? It's careful what you wish for. Because, <laughs> no. uh, you know, uh, one time Charlie Hume asked me once, he said, when are you going to retire, Roger? And I said, why would I want to do that? You know, 
the traveling sometimes gets you down, you know, sitting in a car, sitting in a van, sitting in a plane, sitting on a train, you know, there's sitting down here, there and everywhere. Each time it's sitting is okay when I'm playing drums, but um, the planning part is always great. Uh, you know, I still get chills when you walk out on stage, you walk out on stage and we just did some shows with um, Leonard Skinner, they're, they're doing their final tour. I said, <laughs> I said, final tour, and I, like with a, a smirk, and he said, well, it's going to take two or three years. <laughs> so, uh, and we, 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 uh, so that, that was a lot of fun. I mean, they're really cool guys, and, uh, and, and they, they, they're trying to get all the bands that they played with over the years on their tour from time to time. We've all done a lot more dates with them, but uh, we'd already booked, we usually book about six to nine months in advance, uh, just so we know where we're going. Um, uh, we did a number of shows with George Thorogood uh, this year. That's a great band. I mean, that, that's a lot of fun to play with. In fact, I got up and played with them a couple of times, only on Maracas. Now, all these years you've played, and now you're still playing, what would you say when you guys play concerts now, what song do the fans go craziest about? Because you got to be able to see it as a drummer. You hear it. What do you think live? What do you think? Is it slow ride? Do you think that's what they go craziest for? Uh, yeah. Um, hold on a second. No, it's my drum solo. You know, it's like, that's when they go crazy. So we know he's a true Earl. The other ones are phony Earls. Anyway, people, so check out Fockett. Just go, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to put the live album on 
before Joanne gets home from the gym, especially we've done this uh, interview. And uh, I want to thank you for listening, people. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk one You can find some pictures up there from food, from when I had my heart problem a few years ago. I wrote that cookbook called StopTheSalt.com. Go to StopTheSalt.com. Stop the salt. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long lists of ingredients. So do that. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. So you get off after you listen to this, and you go listen to some podcast. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm on the hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and thank you for Elliot McGoo, McGow, I always pronounce his name wrong, for helping me get this interview. So you guys have a great weekend.